listening to the Already Gone podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. While I was born and raised in the Detroit area, my father is a transplant. He was born in Beckley, West Virginia, and called the Mountain State his home until he finished college, when a job offer from General Motors lured him to Michigan. His parents remained in West Virginia, and as a child, one of our regular family trips, usually over a long weekend, was to make the 400-and-some-mile drive south to Beckley. Beckley is a small town, perched in the mountains, and it's located about 40 miles south of Charleston, the capital of West Virginia. It's in this small mining town that my father was born and raised. He was the son of a business owner. My grandfather operated a small working man's bar downtown, a convenient place to grab a beer at the end of your shift. And you could have your beer three ways, on tap, in the can, or from the bottle. Now, if you wanted something harder, you had to visit a state ABC store. His place wasn't just a bar, though. Each day, Grandpa headed to work at 5 a.m. to prepare the kitchen, because starting at 6 o'clock, hungry locals were arriving for hot breakfast. Eggs, toast, hot cakes, fresh coffee. It was a busy place. Sadly, the recession of the 1970s paired with my paternal grandfather's advancing age led to his retirement. He sold the bar to a local man who took over the business and kept things running a few years more. Beckley, like many small working towns, she faced hardships over the last 20 or 30 years as people moved away from the city center and jobs went with them. If you were to drive by what was my grandfather's storefront now, you'd never know it was there, much like Murphy's, the five-and-dime store up the block on Heber Street. It remains only in the memories of a few old-timers. And I have a story from this era, an unsolved murder from Beckley, one my grandfather read about in the local papers, the Beckley Post-Herald and the Raleigh Register. He did love to read the paper and stay informed about the community that he'd called home for almost 50 years. I'm sure he read about this crime and likely tutted to my grandmother over the dining room table about changes in the Beckley they knew and loved. The victim's house was just a few short blocks from their own. It's likely that my grandparents crossed paths with the victim at some point, maybe in busy downtown Beckley or at the local A&P grocery store on South Oakwood. So come with me, listeners, to wild, wonderful West Virginia. It's the summer of 1981, and a school teacher, a young bride-to-be, she's not going to make it to the altar. Cynthia Jane Miller was a smart young woman a 1972 graduate of Woodrow Wilson High School in Beckley, and a graduate of Concord College in Athens, West Virginia, just an hour or so south of her childhood home. Cynthia studied mathematics with the goal of becoming a schoolteacher. After graduation, she took a job at Park Middle School, the same middle school she herself attended a decade earlier. In 1974, when she was still a college student, Cynthia started seeing a local man, Michael Cole, from nearby Princeton. The two were married over Christmas break in 1975, but the marriage wouldn't last. Cynthia and Michael remained friends post-divorce, but their marriage just wasn't a good match. Because of her religious beliefs, she agonized over the divorce. Cynthia knew what her faith said about the sanctity of marriage, but after consulting with her family and with her pastor, she decided divorce was the right thing to do. 
Cynthia Jane Miller and Michael Cole were legally divorced in 1979, and later that year Cynthia met someone new, Gary O'Neill, a police officer from the nearby community of Leicester. After a few months of dating exclusively, Cynthia and Gary decided that the relationship was serious, and they should get married, but she kept getting cold feet. The couple set and canceled their wedding not once, but twice. Cynthia confided in her friends and co-workers that she loved Gary, but they had their differences and they argued sometimes. She was hopeful that their love was enough to see them through the arguments and into a long and happy union, but she had doubts which led to not one, but two sets of canceled vows. Gary was a patient man. He loved her and he waited out her indecision. A wedding date in August of 1981 was set, and the two had a wonderful, romantic summer leading up to the big day. Because both had been married previously, Cynthia and Gary thought a church wedding wouldn't be right. They opted instead to be married at Leicester City Hall on a Friday evening, in front of friends and family. Leicester is a tiny community about 10 miles outside of Beckley, and when I say Leicester is tiny... In 1990, they had a population of less than 400 people. The City Hall building, where they planned to marry, is small and unassuming. The wedding of Cynthia Miller and Gary O'Neill would be modest, but it would be full of love. In 1981, Cynthia is living in a house on Miller Street in Beckley. She'd purchased the home from her grandfather back in 1979, and Miller lived in the house with her dog, and, despite her conservative religious leanings, Gary moved into Cynthia's home many months prior to their wedding. To make ends meet on her teaching salary and his modest income from police work, Cynthia took to selling Avon beauty products on the side and rented the basement of her home to a boarder, a woman named Terry Boland. Gary and Cynthia set their wedding date as Friday, August 27, 1981. Cynthia was very busy that week, getting everything ready for the new school year and packaging orders from her Avon business. She wanted to have everything complete so they could enjoy their wedding weekend and start their new life together off right. On Thursday, August 26, Gary purchased a bouquet of long-stemmed red roses for his bride to carry. He asked one of his co-workers in Leicester, City Hall employee Beverly Snuffer, a friend of Cynthia's, to keep the flowers safe and cool so they'd be ready for her to carry during the wedding. Now, before we dig into the last day of Cynthia's life, I'd like to do a quick overview of the setting and the players. Our victim, Cynthia Miller, is a 27-year-old schoolteacher at Park Middle School in Beckley. She is engaged to 31-year-old Gary O'Neill, a police officer from the town of Leicester. Gary, who'd been married previously, was an Army veteran who served during the Vietnam War. Also living in Cynthia's house is a boarder who rented out the basement apartment, a woman named Terry Boland. The three of them share a one-story house with basement in the eastern part of downtown Beckley. To clarify, because I think it's confusing, Cynthia Miller's home was on Miller Street in Beckley. Her name and the street name are the same, and that's just a coincidence. On Thursday, August 26th, Cynthia spent the morning cleaning and organizing her classroom in anticipation of the school year starting the week of August 30th. She wrapped up her school stuff around lunchtime and went to a previously scheduled doctor's appointment at 1 o'clock. After seeing the doctor, Cynthia was home, cleaning and organizing the house. She also spent some time working on her Avon orders. She wanted to have all of her work done so she could just spend the whole weekend celebrating married life with her new husband. 
It was important to Cynthia that the two be married before the start of the school year. She wanted to introduce herself to students as Mrs. O'Neill, not Miss Miller, right on day one. Cynthia married her first husband, Michael Cole, in December of 1975, which meant name changes in the middle of the school year. She wasn't interested in repeating that process when she became Mrs. O'Neill. With the Avon orders in progress, Cynthia is feeling happy and restless about the wedding. So she gets in the car and drives to nearby Mabscott, where her father worked at the Montgomery Ward warehouse. She visited with her dad and the two talked about the wedding. Previously, Cynthia had hesitated, calling off the wedding twice, but this time, her father, Francis Miller, said that she was happy and excited. And during their visit, Cynthia mentioned that the garage door at her house was acting up. Would her dad please come and have a look at it? And once his shift at the warehouse was over, he came to the home on Miller Street about six o'clock and he repaired the door, promising Cynthia he would see her the next day at her wedding. Before we continue, let's have a word from our sponsor. Gary O'Neill arrived home from his job with the Leicester Police about 7 p.m. He found Cynthia working on the last of her Avon orders. Gary changed out of his uniform, and the two had a quick dinner. About 8 o'clock, Gary decided he wanted to see his folks, talk with them about last-minute wedding stuff. He invited Cynthia to join him, but she declined, opting to finish waiting laundry and start delivering her customers' orders. Gary kissed her goodbye and promised to be back about 11, 11.30 that night. The trip from Beckley to Princeton, where his parents lived, is not a short trip. It would take about 40 minutes to make the 35-mile drive between the communities. While Cynthia and Gary ate dinner, it was just the two of them in the house. Terry Boland, who lived in the basement apartment, had been out visiting with her family. Boland returned to the Miller Street house around 8.30, not too long after Gary O'Neill left to visit his own family. When Bolin returned, she found the back gate open and Cynthia's dog running loose. Bolin tells Cynthia that her key isn't working and asks for help with the door to her apartment. Bolin would later tell police that Cynthia came downstairs to the laundry area where the two chatted briefly. Cynthia was a bundle of happy, nervous energy ahead of the wedding. And after Cynthia went back upstairs, Bolin was tired and decided to lay down for a bit. With Cynthia just a few feet away, upstairs in the house, Terry Boland fell asleep. At nine o'clock, after putting a load of laundry in the washer, Cynthia calls her supervisor at Avon to discuss a couple of orders. They talked for 20 minutes. When she hangs up the phone, Cynthia has only minutes left to live. Terry Boland is still sleeping downstairs, with the washer and dryer running in the next room. Gary O'Neill is in Princeton, visiting with his family. O'Neill calls home at 9.30, but the phone rang and went unanswered. He calls his future mother-in-law, who told him that she thought maybe Cynthia was out delivering orders to clients. About 9.30, this is around the same time Gary called the house he shared with Cynthia and gets no answer, a call comes in to the Beckley Police Department with a report of someone shooting off firecrackers near Miller Street. Miller Street, where Cynthia lived, is just over a mile from the police department, and I imagine that they had an officer drive through the neighborhood to investigate. If you're familiar with Beckley, Cynthia's home is just off E Street, between South Fayette and Kanawha. Her house is almost directly between Park Middle School and the Black Knight Golf Course. Meanwhile, in the basement apartment of Cynthia's house, Terry Boland has fallen asleep. 
According to Boland, she will remain downstairs, asleep, until her own phone rings just after 11 p.m. The phone call wakes her up. It's her father calling to say that he's had car trouble. Will she please come get him? Boland leaves the apartment through its private entrance. She has no idea that anything is amiss upstairs. Gary O'Neill called looking for Cynthia several times, including stopping at a payphone on his way back from his parents' house, hoping to reach her. When he finally arrives home, it's 11.35, and there is only one car at the house, and it belongs to Cynthia. When Gary sees her car parked in its usual spot, he's relieved. Perhaps she just got back from making deliveries and missed his earlier calls. Remember, it's 1981, so not only are there no cell phones, answering machines aren't commonly used either. Terry Boland isn't at the house. She headed out a few minutes earlier to help her father with his car trouble. The other thing that Gary notices when he arrives home is that the porch light isn't on. Cynthia always left the light on for him. The front porch is so dark that he must light a match so he can get his key in the door. Again, it's 1981, and while they didn't have answering machines, there are a lot of smokers, so it's not unusual that Gary had matches or a lighter to help him get the door open. I'm going to pause here to note that while Beckley was a small town with a population of roughly 20,000 people, it was not exempt from crime, and a woman home alone at night would do well to lock her doors. Finding the front door locked was not unusual, but the porch light, well, Cynthia would have left that on for him. When Gary enters the house that night, he shifts from police officer to victim. His bride-to-be, pretty, dark-haired Cynthia Jane Miller, is dead on the living room floor. She's been shot four times, including two shots to the head from a twenty-five caliber weapon. O'Neill calls 911 begging for help and Beckley's finest respond within minutes. Remember, the Miller Street house is about a mile from the Beckley police station. But it's too late. Cynthia is dead. More calls are made, bringing in the coroner and detectives, and the tidy white house on Miller Street is taped off as a crime scene. When first responders find Cynthia on the floor in the living room, she's dressed in jeans and a t-shirt. The shirt she's wearing bears a photo of Cynthia and Gary with the slogan, Summer of 81, You and Me. Cynthia had the t-shirt specially made to celebrate her upcoming wedding and the love she shared with her fiancé. As paramedics go to work on her still warm body, the damage to her face is so severe that responders think she was beaten to death, but they soon find multiple bullet wounds. When Dr. Jamil Ahmed of Raleigh General Hospital examines her remains, he places her time of death around 9.30 p.m., almost two hours before she was found. At 9.30, Gary O'Neill was 30-some miles away in Princeton, and Terry Boland was sleeping in her downstairs apartment. If Cynthia was murdered around 9.30, this places her time of death at the same time as the report of firecrackers came into the Beckley Police Department. Because of the nature of her death, an autopsy is performed. The examination reveals four bullet wounds— one in the shoulder, one through the ear, one shot through the top of her head, and one shot in the throat. Two of these shots were what is called a contact wound, where the gun is in direct contact with the body when the shot is fired. The other two shots were from very close range, less than two feet away. The amount of violence and overkill left investigators baffled. 
Cynthia was a well-liked middle school teacher about to be married. What motive could anyone have to kill her? A Dr. Irvin Sofer, a medical examiner up in the state capitol in Charleston, he reviews Dr. Ahmed's findings, and he agrees that there were four shots, and that Cynthia likely died within minutes. When police question Terry Boland, who was downstairs in her apartment when the murder occurred, she tells them that she was sleeping, and Cynthia had put in a load of laundry. She didn't hear anything. Boland woke up when her father called just after 11 that night, asking for help with his car. She left her apartment through its private entrance and went to help her dad, returning home at 1 a.m. to find police swarming the house she shared with Cynthia and Gary. Boland said she last saw Cynthia around 8.30 or 9 when she arrived home needing help with her key, and said that Cynthia was happy, doing some laundry, and working on her Avon orders. Understandably, police doubted Boland's story. Even if she were asleep, surely the sound of gunfire would have been enough to wake her. So they reenacted the crime, using a twenty-five caliber automatic weapon loaded with blanks. Two officers went to the basement apartment and positioned themselves near where Boland said she was sleeping. The officers upstairs fired the weapon, and the officers downstairs confirmed that the shots were loud and noticeable. Could the washing machine have muffled the noise for Boland, but still allowed it to reach neighbors who called the police to report someone shooting off fireworks? I'll be honest, it doesn't sit right with me, but I'm hard-pressed to come up with a motive for her to murder Cynthia, especially in such a violent and brutal way. And I know that Beckley police looked into Terry Boland, examining her story, her activities that evening, and her history. Gary O'Neill, who was several miles away in Princeton visiting his parents, had an alibi for the time of the murder. If Dr. Ahmed's estimated time of death, about 9.30 p.m., was correct, Gary could not have been the shooter. Gary's parents tell authorities that at 9.30 he was at their home, nowhere near Beckley. Police check the phone bill, confirming that calls were placed from the O'Neill home in Princeton to the Miller Street home where Cynthia was killed. Police will later confirm to the press that phone records backed up Gary's story. This gave him a solid alibi. With Gary O'Neill being a fellow officer and Cynthia being a well-known, well-liked teacher at the middle school, this case received a lot of attention from locals. In the days following her murder, Beckley detectives put in long hours, interviewing suspects and running down leads. Lieutenant Billy J. Cole, chief of detectives for Beckley Police, he told the press that nothing was missing or stolen from the home. Whoever killed Cynthia came to the house for that purpose, to kill the 27-year-old math teacher. There was no sign of forced entry, meaning Cynthia knew her killer and let them into the house. There was no sign of sexual assault. The house was not ransacked. The killer did what they came to do, and they departed, leaving Cynthia to die. Cynthia's case makes a splash in the news. Bride-to-be slain just hours before her wedding. The story made its way through the press, but the coverage, unfortunately, was short-lived and did not lead investigators to the person responsible for her death. Just days after Cynthia Jane Miller was murdered, a new school year resumes and students return to the classroom. Park Middle School hires a new math teacher. Immediately following Cynthia's murder, her fiancé, Gary O'Neill, is laid off from his job at the Leicester Police Department. The Leicester Police Chief told the press that the federal grant that funded Gary O'Neill's position with the department, well, that ran out on August 31st. And Leicester Police may choose to hire him back, based on the results of the investigation into the murder. 
Meanwhile, Beckley police hit the case hard. They interviewed dozens of people and processed tips, but the case isn't going anywhere. When the murder of Cynthia Jane Miller doesn't resolve within a few months and appears in danger of going cold, Beckley police chief Thomas Durrett, who ended up having an amazing 55-year career in law enforcement, he's not afraid to ask for help. He reached out to the FBI behavior analysts at Quantico seeking their input. Perhaps fresh eyes would reveal something new about the case or about the killer. So the FBI went through her file. They reviewed crime scene photos and autopsy reports. While the findings weren't released at the time, now, decades later, they are posted to Cynthia's Crime Stoppers page. Based on their review of the evidence available, FBI profilers believed that one, Cynthia knew her killer very well. Two, Cynthia had recently rejected the person who killed her. Three, the number of gunshot wounds to her head is a sign of overkill as well as anger on the part of the perpetrator. Four, it's very likely that the perpetrator was interviewed by authorities and cooperated with the investigation. And five, the perpetrator would appear to be distraught over Cynthia's death. They went so far as to say that her killer was probably upset about her death and grieved her absence, even though they were the one that killed her. Beckley police again looked at those closest to Cynthia, her fiancé, Gary O'Neill, her boarder, Terry Boland, former husband, Michael Cole, her family and co-workers at Park Middle School. And no matter how they tried, the pieces wouldn't fit together. There just wasn't enough for an arrest. The murder of Cynthia Jane Miller is now waiting at the Beckley Police Department. While there is a detective assigned and a cold case team in place, there isn't any progress without new information. Gary O'Neill, Cynthia's husband-to-be, passed away in 2014. Francis Miller, Cynthia's father who visited with her just hours before her death, he died in 2006. Terry Boland, the boarder living in the downstairs apartment, she was cleared of any involvement in Cynthia's death and eventually left West Virginia. In a 2011 interview with the Beckley Register-Herald newspaper, detectives revealed that they believe someone with a vendetta against Gary O'Neill could be responsible for the murder, and they again asked the public to come forward with information about her case. Cynthia wasn't the only professional woman to meet a violent end in Beckley in the last half of 1981. Just a week before Christmas, and four months after Cynthia was shot to death, 33-year-old Nancy Starks McMillan was murdered in her home. McMillan lived just one block from where Cynthia Miller was killed. Articles about McMillan's death, of which there are few, made no mention of her husband, Robert Allen McMillan, whom she married in 1970. At the time of her death, McMillan worked in the Raleigh County Prosecutor's Office. When she didn't report for her duties as a magistrate, a welfare check is performed at her residence. A sheriff responded to her home, and he discovered the window next to the side door was smashed, so he calls for backup and enters the residence, finding McMillan strangled to death. One of McMillan's co-workers, Raleigh County Prosecutor Bruce Lazenby, he put up a $10,000 reward for information. The person responsible for McMillan's murder left behind evidence at the scene, and eventually that evidence led police to make an arrest. A man from the state capitol up in Charleston, he was tried for her murder, but the case presented did not prove his involvement in her death, and the jury returned a verdict of not guilty. Because McMillan was African-American and Cynthia Miller was white, and the cause of death in each case was so different, 
Cynthia was shot several times at close range by someone she opened the door willingly for, and Macmillan was snuck up on and strangled after a killer broke into her home. Law enforcement does not believe there is a connection between the two cases. Well, no connection other than geography and time. If you have information about the murder of Cynthia Jane Miller, please contact Crime Stoppers at 304-255-STOP. For more information about this case, including photos and links to some of our research, visit our website at alreadygonepodcast.com. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe. Mm-hmm.